you know, what I actually think is the most important thing um, is the ratio between your CAC and your LTV, right? And VCs focus on the on having a really high LTV because the typical VC thing is, okay, I'm going to give you a shit ton of cash, pump your CAC. So you need a really high LTV to support that, right? But the alternative that a lot of travel businesses have is, okay, actually, I can look at uh, improving the ratio between my LTV and my CAC if my LTV is not so high. So have a low CAC, but keep acquiring people. This is My Product Tested, the show that unpacks how successful founders have tested their way to the top and all the market validation that happened along the way. In studio, as always, from the Hype team, Miles Hurfak and Cameron Calder, and here in studio today, Anthony Nikolais, founder of the shared economy-based startup, Stasher. Anthony and his founding team have spent the last six and a half years building a product that's on a mission to help travelers find affordable, convenient storage for their belongings. Travolution Startup of the Year, Expedia's Travel Startup 2018. Winners of Pitch at Palace, Stasher does not only have more wins under their belt than Johnny Depp's lawyer in a courtroom, but is one of London's fastest growing startups. Anthony, welcome to the studio. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you with us. Um, we were <clears throat> had one or two looks at your LinkedIn profile and there's some some really interesting things happening there. Oh we, man, uh... it's become uh, become a busy space. I'm sure that we'll cover it, but um, uh, or I, I guess we can just jump into now and we'll talk about a lot of the kind of growth steps along the way. Um, but yeah, obviously, I guess the immediate question people have now is, you know, what happened during COVID? Um, and the answer is that it was largely a very quiet period. Um, so picked up some some side projects. Also started a podcast. Mm. Um, but that's just actually my co-founder and I just kind of talking about everyday philosophy. Um, I've done some angel investing and also actually set up a social enterprise that works in basically using tech integration to make it easier for other companies to um, take climate action uh, and and then also to understand climate action. So it's become, yeah, the, the LinkedIn profile has become a very busy place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we uh, we actually listened to a bit of your podcasts um, in this week, uh, the mor- morality of everyday things. And, and I thought mm. a, a pretty good topic would be uh, Cam's profile picture on LinkedIn. You know, I think at one oh. stage it it was him him at a him at a pub drinking a beer, and now it's him in a a meeting room with three coffee cups next to him and a and a burger carton. So I don't think he's quite <laughs> he, he quite gets the brief of it should be a more formal space. And see, the thing is, you know, I'm coming across as that more relatable element. So there's you know people can really interact with me. They can join me for a beer at a pub. And then we can do business after. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like that. I like that you've defended it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, to, be, to be honest, that is actually something that I've like have generally found interesting. Um, you know, kind of expectations of presentation, particularly in professional formats. I think, to be honest, sometimes subverting expectations can be useful. Um, so, like you say, it's a good way to put people at ease. Another yeah. thing that I think a lot of like tech people will do is. Um, partially because you know you're you're lazy, and partially because you're you're doing it intentionally. Maybe is like you know not wearing suits in contexts where people might expect that. Like don't wear a suit to a VC meeting. Why to communicate the fact that like I am not that type of person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it it does it does just kind of remind me of that whole debate where I know there's a lot of people who kind of have that kind of defiant. Uh, a lot of people have this defiant like I'm going to do X Y Z. I don't know like. Um, something out there, dress in a mm. funny way, dye my hair a funny color, etc. 
uh, and say, the reason I'm doing that is just because I like it and I don't care what other people think. Uh, and I think it kind of misses that step in between where it's like, well, humans are social creatures. Everything that we, you know, every way that you choose to present yourself largely is, uh, or at least a significant component is thinking about what you are signaling to other people. Um, yeah. And even if you're saying like, I want to do this just because I want to do it, the fact that you internally think you just want to do it is probably the result of some sort of socialization of understanding what that signal means. Even if that signal is, I mean, even, even if the signal is, I'm trying to convey to people that I don't care what they think, that is actually ironically trying to say that to them by doing yeah. something unconventional. Yeah. 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 I mean, but yeah, that, that, that is the kind of stuff that we do. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, we, uh, or I used to work in a traditional advertising agency, which was very far away, uh, away from where we are now. And, you know, mm. we had a big corporate, uh, financial investments, um, CIB company that we were working with and we were doing all of their sort of creative uh, above the line work. Um, and we mm. used to go there for meetings and, you know, being a creative agency, people aren't dressed in suits and ties. So, you know, about six months in of having this client, they came to us and had like a formal meeting with us saying, you know, you guys, if you're coming to our office, you need to dress like everyone else. This like needs mm. to be the formality. Here. And, you know, from like a positioning perspective and the psychology behind it is how you perceived in this environment and you know you hire a outside agency like this to change things up and have a outside perspective that's different so mm -hmm. yeah it's it's pretty interesting because yeah we were chatting about this yesterday and then interestingly enough i got this uh, guy sending me a, a message on on linkedin saying he's uh gonna do professional photographs for me <laughs> um uh, <laughs> perfect timing he saw cam's um, profile picture history and was like this guy is my target market. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need professional photos? Because I can yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not hinting anything, but yeah. it needs something needs to change. Um, but yeah, um, you know, Anthony, thanks so much for your time. Uh, you guys are almost sort of seven years down the road um, with some wild highs and lows, and from the outside looks like a, a very epic journey. Um, but today, uh, in this very room, for the listeners, what is Stasha? Okay, so Stasher is a, a platform, an online platform, um, where we basically work with shops and hotels to provide short-term storage, uh, primarily for tourists. So practically that means, uh, for example, you were staying in Airbnb, you have to check out at 10 a.m. Um, and you have maybe a five-hour window until you travel onwards. Um, you can use our platform to find a local business, shop or hotel, and book to leave your bags, fully insured for the day. Um, and for the hosts, for the, for the businesses, it's a way of generating extra revenue. Um, the actual business model itself is very similar to Airbnb, um, except instead of storing people in homes, we're storing bags and businesses. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting. I was actually in, in Ireland recently, uh, and mm. sort of rented a car, traveled around Southern Ireland, which was amazing, beautiful place. And there were many times where we needed to contact our uh, Airbnb host or uh, just to look after our bags because you know we we needed to check in later at 3 p.m but we mm -hmm. were going to be pulling our bags around with us the whole day and then we couldn't get hold of them or or weren't able to do that so we literally ended up just walking around with these massive bags uh, and we just didn't know about stasher so yeah. it's it's quite interesting because that seems exactly like the problem that you guys were trying to solve just the same problem uh, we're probably penetrating sub 10% of the potential market. And the reason I say that is because most people like yourself in that circumstance 
mm. but don't even at the moment think to look for that solution. Um, that, and, and particularly, you know, us and, and a couple other people later, uh, come later on taking this platform approach. Um, it's just in terms of physical, like convenience, like how close a place is likely to be versus say, for example, like a, a, a shop that's operating in one location. Uh, and then also the price point that you can do it at, um, where it still makes sense for your business. Um, there are use cases where previously, you know, does it make sense to go to the city's main train station and pay twice the price? Probably not. But if there's a place around the corner and it's half the price of the train facilities, like, yeah, okay, fine. I'll use that. It opens up like a huge number of transactions that otherwise wouldn't happen. Mm. Um, kind of similar to like other marketplaces like Airbnb and Uber, where, you know, there are times that, you know, absent of Airbnb, I know personally, there's a lot of times I've been like, ah, I probably just won't go on that holiday or go there because the accommodation is going to be too expensive. Um, and obviously with an Uber, like, you know, I take, I take taxis far more frequently now that um, the apps mean that it's both significantly more convenient and way cheaper. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that's a big problem for us, um, getting people aware. However, and this is kind of the growth stage we're at, um, at the moment, it's just so much more lucrative and we don't have huge profits to reinvest. Um, it's so much more lucrative to focus on acquiring the people who are looking for these problems um, or working directly with partners who, so for example, Airbnb managers, um, to get the people who are likely to need it rather than kind of top of funnel, um, marketing activities to kind of make people aware to search when they have the issue. But that's, I mean, thinking on a like two, three year horizon, that's where the business will go. And certainly if we kind of introduce some more services, we can amortize the costs of managing and signing up the network over more service lines. That's definitely the kind of thing that will start to make financial sense. But for now, uh, the problem is that the the problem in doing something like that is that versus something like Airbnb, um, the the uh, amount that our customers are spending on average is too low to justify doing big kind of branding campaigns uh, in out of home uh, venues. Yeah, I mean that's a, a big sort of question that I'd love to get into just now about sort of building inventory and then building customers as well to try you know fulfill that as well um, and and how yeah. you guys kind of started that, but. But moving back to kind of the beginning um, and where you guys started, yeah. you're now solving this problem of, uh, you know, these potential travelers knowing exactly who your customer is and then having the actual inventory that's available for them to drop this off. Was that the problem the whole time? What sort of problem were you solving when you guys first started? Was that so okay. many different so, to now? So actually, um, it started out very different, uh, very open. Uh, and I kind of, I kind of maintain any half decent business idea is two or three pivots away from, you know, an excellent business idea. Um, so we started out just thinking platform for storage, uh, and we hadn't thought about narrowing it to a use case. Um, the first places we were using were our own homes and some of our friends' homes. And we just, you know, basically we were like, oh, that's, I, I was living from Houston Kings Cross. For those who don't know, those are major train stations in London. And I always had people asking to leave stuff. So we're like, let's make a website where people can book that. Uh, so me and my co-founder put our places live. Um, and originally, yeah, it wasn't supposed to be limited to one day. But what we found was, and maybe this is a little bit of serendipity and luck, um, because I was next to Houston King's Cross, almost all the bookings were people booking to leave for one day. Uh, and it was all luggage. And it was always an alternative to leaving at the station facilities because it was a better price, right? Um, and then we kind of learned a bit about this market looked into it and we kind of realized, okay, actually the mid to long-term market is very different to the short-term market. Um, the key difference is basically that uh, because when you start to store long-term, um, 
one, uh, the, the type of person doing that is different. It tends to be locals, it tends to be between places, or maybe you're moving away for like a year or whatever. So it's more long-term and that's really the play. It's more about like a high lifetime value thing. Um, so you, you tend to charge quite little per item uh, or you know per square meter or whatever you want to call it uh, per day or per month. Uh, and the other thing is that the reason you have to do that, it has to be quite little, is because you're competing with the alternative of just driving your stuff somewhere where the land and labor is cheaper i.e. the outskirts of London rather than central London, right? Um, whereas when you're storing a bag for four or five hours, that's not really an option. Like the cost of getting the thing out somewhere where it's cheaper to store would be more than just the premium of, of uh, prime storage location. Um, and then the other thing that we realized was like, okay, people who are doing that, they're all travelers, right? And actually it was by having like an open platform, uh, like let anyone store anything anywhere, uh, we quickly realized, oh, right, okay, so... Actually, these are very different use cases. The price points need to be different. The margins need to be really different. Um, and we like after kind of analyzing the two options, like do we want to be a, a platform for self-storage or do we want to be a platform for storage for tourists? Uh, the platform for storage for tourists just looked like a better opportunity. Um, so we, we decided to do that. Um, and we also realized if you were storing these bags for a day or whatever, it made no sense in people's homes. Um, it had to be in businesses because one, it's clearer where that is to people turning up to an apartment block to drop off your stuff is nowhere near as convenient yeah. as like hey this shop it has a storefront you'll recognize it um and the other thing was that we actually could suddenly command like we'd started out thinking like airbnb style like oh 10 20 percent commissions right we very quickly realized actually if we turn this into an ancillary revenue for businesses and they're getting incremental value because of um you know if, if it's a hotel brand they're interested in you know getting people aware of their brand if it's a shop people will buy stuff when they're there um, in that case, actually, we could command a way higher commission. So at the moment, we actually take uh, 50, sometimes more than 50%. Actually, we're about to implement the price change, so it would be about 60-ish percent. Sure. Um, and that's okay, because that makes sense for the business, because they're still making about 250 per bag that they store, and they get that incremental value of better awareness and, uh, and some people footfall into their shop. Uh, so it ended up, you know, it started really open, and then we kind of learned largely through talking to customers, seeing the customers who were using it first, like hey these are very different personas and we actually have the choice to build a storage business or a travel business and we decided that the travel business made more sense yeah yeah i mean that that type of progress is is really amazing to see uh you hear about some founders who you know start a a, a, a software platform or, or a similar sort of marketplace platform uh, on wordpress or something that they you know built in their garage but uh how did sort of what was the initial idea what was the mvp um what was the as in technically sort of, technically how did we manage it uh yeah what what did the first sort of iteration of the platform look like with respect to yeah. how it how it functioned so uh there's two steps before we kind of reached the point where we had enough traction raised enough to build like a dedicated platform the first step was actually and i really recommend this to anyone who's thinking about marketplaces uh there's a there's a marketplace as a service uh software a business called Share Tribe, and basically, if you want to set up a simple rental or or buying selling platform, they provide an adequate software solution for an MVP. Uh, and I mean, they've come they've come way way further than when we were using them for our MVP. Now it's like adequate to take you to a reasonable stage. I mean, if you're going to build a VC business where you're going to raise like a million plus, like you'll, at some point you'll have to transition, or it'll be yeah. part of a wider solution that you use. Um, but yeah, like the, the product is great and especially for MVPing, their most basic product is super affordable 
uh, and exactly what you need to prove just enough traction to, to like take it further. Um, after that, we did build a, a kind of adapted WordPress WooCommerce style uh, using some sort of WooCommerce adaptation to like do marketplace style um, plugins. And yeah, I mean, we used that for about a year. It was working well. And then ultimately we moved to a custom built uh, platform just because uh, like ultimately anytime you're using any of these tools, um, you know, even, even if it's somewhat open source at some point, manipulating something to suit yes. your needs. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, when you reach a certain scale, it's like, okay, actually the improved efficiency of just doing it ourselves would be better. But yeah, it's, it totally makes sense to delay that point to the point where it makes sense. Don't spend too much uh, on tech too early to reinvent the wheel when, you know, the 5% better than, than whatever off the shelf stuff um, exists is not worth it at your revenue levels. Yeah, it's, it's quite a, a difficult start off the go because you launching this wide sort of problem that you're solving, you know, that, you know, that storage is, is a problem. It's expensive mm -hmm. or it needs to be in specific areas that you have to travel to. And then you're yeah. kind of narrowing in on that and going, okay, well, there's actually these different personas that we're going after and the, the cohorts that are available have their own unique problems that you're trying to solve. And then you also have the inventory side where you're trying to manage margins on your side, but also trying to maximize their, um, you know, customer satisfaction as they're sort of holding this inventory. And mm. I think the interesting thing is that, you know, once you set up this MVP or what the V2, V3 looks like, you then trying to adapt that to all these different personas and then trying to find what clicks over time. Um, mm. So that's quite, quite interesting. And I mean, in the background, you're kind of tracking the numbers as well to kind of see what's kicking off from an inventory side and then what's kicking off from the customer side and, and where does that click? Were there any sort of key metrics that you're looking at outside of the sort of standard metrics for growth um, that you're looking to monitor um, from the start? Yeah, so I would say on our part, uh, uh, so one thing to clarify, so the way that hotels or Airbnb has room nights, um, which is just, you know, the number of rooms booked times the number of nights they're booked for, um, so one apartment booked for three nights is three room nights. Um, uh, we work in terms of bag days, which is kind of like the equivalent of room nights. Um, so number of bags times our number of days. Um, that's the kind of top level metric. Um, I think the other thing for us is, and this is typical for any marketplace where you're uh, at, like functioning in lots of different cities or areas, it would be looking at specifically um, traffic and conversion rates in both at both a city level and also areas within cities um, because that's often like a mismatch there is the best indication that you're uh, having a, a problem with supply um, or yeah. that you're focusing too much effort somewhere where supply uh, isn't needed. Um, so basically if you are getting anywhere where demand is high but conversion rate is low that implies like okay the supply that you have isn't adequate. Um, in our case the supply is more homogenous than Airbnb less homogenous than uber right so when you order an uber you literally don't care which uber comes um when you order and when you book an airbnb it's highly dependent which airbnb you pick right the, the price and the place that you're booking it's they're all very very different for us it's somewhere in between because largely you know any place near where you need to store is largely substitu substitutable but people generally have a preference for like a reputable hotel over a small corner shop or something like that right yeah um, and certainly like reviews are important. So like it, it, when the conversion rate is low, it could indicate that either the places you have 
aren't adequate because of hours or because of how close they are to like a key attraction um, or there's not enough of them they're filling up so i think that was kind of the the thing that we were looking at mostly like traffic and conversion rate on a city and area level um just to understand whether we were getting the balance between supply and demand right yeah so how, how did you guys manage that in the beginning because you're obviously trying to hone in on a tight proximity to build inventory and then build that awareness yeah. as well um so, so how did that start well, yeah so for us um i think it's a fairly like typical marketplace strategy where it starts out very land and expand so like you will you will intentionally like be like okay we're now focused like day to day week to week whatever focuses getting supply in you know near this train station um and then naturally for us the the two channels that really were working early on were um paid search like it was honestly like it was as if it was the 90s no one was bidding on luggage storage location uh sure. so you're getting cheap clicks yeah. now that's actually one of the things that now makes it impossible for other people there's too many people there's either too many platforms like us or um like local services competing on these things like the opportunity doesn't exist anymore to start cheaply um, and then the other thing is that you know it wasn't the truth initially but over the years you build domain authority and then the other thing is like you can bring up your seo uh, ranking by you know optimizing the local page to that area so for example the king's cross landing page um and you know finding some backlinks getting linked in the relevant things there so you kind of focus on on getting the supply and demand in that place and then um, you can kind of assess it. You, you get your supply and demand team to kind of work a little bit sequentially and then move on to the next place. You just make a list of places based on Google Trends estimated search volumes um, and, and, you know, blending that with, you know, what you know is available, competitive info, as in like, ah, is this place, or is there too many, are there too many competitors there for to bother? Um, is this place hard for us to get to? Uh, do we have a reason to think that you can't get reasonable supply there? So for example, somewhere like New York, most people don't know, um, independent hotels are largely unionized, right? So it's actually very hard to get high quality supply in New York. Um, so it's, it, you know, things like that you can factor in, but basically we literally would just have a spreadsheet with all the places and work through like supply would go first, the next week demand would go and work on the SEO and work on, uh, the, make the PPC campaigns. Um, and then a week or two afterwards we review it. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's not all uh, science. Some of it is a little bit of art. You look at the data, you take some contextual understanding and then you decide like, okay, either this hasn't, well, if it's worked, great, you're done, next place. Uh, and if it hasn't worked, you assess like, is it fixable or no, this place isn't gonna, like this place isn't worth trying to make work, move on to the next place. That was kind of early on, it was more focused. Now it's really a, a lot more platform based, um, by which I mean, we focus a lot on, on the supply side, signing major deals that you know can unlock tens or hundreds of cities at once. Yeah. So hotel chains, for example. Um, so, so, you know, for example, we're in about 500 premier inns now, which is a budget chain. That's sure. probably the biggest chain in, in uh, the UK, but then similarly, like other hotel chains around Europe, uh, postal chains, things like that. Um, and the other thing is that we start to get uh, similar to Airbnb, really Airbnb is a great analogy for how we grew the business. Like they did the same city focused city launcher approach. Um, but then you start to get this kind of platform network effect. Uh, and you can start to just, you know, say, for example, in the UK, sign up a place, we can get like a, a, a shopper hotel in a small town in the UK, sign themselves up, um, we'll put them live, and they'll actually get bookings because our domain authority is strong enough that we'll immediately rank qu very quickly for luggage storage terms around that. And there's enough people in the UK who are aware of the service, so they search for it when they happen to be in that location. Um, so it starts out very focused, and then later you're kind of thinking bigger picture, like, 
the focus now is we need to be in as many cities as possible. Um, the other reason being, if you launch a new city, you get to soak up all of this extra free organic search traffic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is that like you normally you have this amazing experience and background before you become a founder and you kind of hope that that experience can plug into what you do. And um, obviously you were uh, doing PPC at Brain Labs before, which is like most epic experience you can get from a paid perspective. And I think uh, it must have been an exciting moment to know that there's this opportunity on search that you know isn't available in the area and you're kind of first to market yeah. there. I think, to, to be honest, there's there's probably quite a lot of, uh, again, serendipity and luck there. Like, you know, I, I could see the argument that um, because of my experience, every, uh, you know, I had a hammer and everything looked like a nail. Uh, but it did so happen that in this specific case, it was a nail. So my hammer yeah. was very appropriate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think it was like from outside, I mean, you're speaking our language. This is yeah, it's what we've done for so many years. And it's a great question for us to ask because you know you're not going to get the standard answer of how you initially uh, penetrated then duplicated that to scale in different regions um it's nice to hear the sort of marketing approach to that and then also understanding that you need the overlay from a business perspective that basically says like where you guys are now you know mm. that just doesn't cut it anymore there's competitors out there there's saturation in all areas and now yep. there needs to be this new approach. You know, how do you build? Is it then using that network effect that you guys say, you know, building this mm. 500 new units of inventory from the Premier Inn, you know, how do they get that distribution from their existing guests in those specific areas? So I think that's mm. yeah, a really great point. Yeah, I think also actually just, just to mention, because we mentioned PPC and it was a great place to kickstart. Um, but I think one evolution of the platform, and we, we talked a little bit about this when we talked about the unique economics and how it affects the ability to advertise to top line traffic. Uh, so to do out of home branding sort of activities, right? To make people aware to search for it when they have a problem. Um, so one other approach that we, we kind of have or that we kind of found was, you know, we're starting out doing a lot of PPC, SEO is taking some time to ramp up, and then obviously your acquisition costs are, are quite high. Um, and the thing about a travel business, especially, and a travel business with a low transaction value, is you know the magic of any business is the difference between how much it costs you to get a customer and how much a customer is worth to you, right? Um, and I think there's a there's a misnomer uh, in particularly startups. Like a lot of VCs will say like, oh, in order to be a big business, you need a really big lifetime value, which is nonsense because that's all relative. That doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, they say like you either need you either need like a a high transaction value, low volume, or high volume, low transaction value. But those are all relative terms. It's very hard to understand what that actually means. Um, and you know what I actually think is the most important thing um, is the ratio between your CAC and your LTV, right? And VCs focus on the on having a really high LTV because the typical VC thing is okay, I'm going to give you a shit ton of cash, pump your CAC, so you need a really high LTV to support that, right? But the alternative that a lot of travel businesses have is okay, actually I can look at uh, improving the ratio between my LTV and my CAC if my LTV is not so high. So have a low CAC but keep acquiring people. Um, so basically, that's a really long way of saying the thing we realized was we need more cheap and free traffic. And when you think about travel businesses, they're so time dependent uh, when it makes sense that you need these services. So you get this interplay between them, right? Which is why when you're trying to book a flight, you're getting referred to all the rental cars and you're getting referred to all the travel insurance and stuff, right? It's mm. very time based. 
So we realized that the next channel that we needed to unlock was were these kind of referral-based um, uh, acquisition channels, so B2B2C. I mean, you, you mentioned all these Airbnb guys, right? Um, what we do is we work with these big vacation rental managers and get them to let their customers know about us because for them, it's solving a problem. It's, it's, even if it, it's a paid service, it's better than saying no. Um, and they can buy some goodwill by saying, hey, you know, on your behalf, we've organized a, a discount, 10, 20%. But then for yeah. us, this is an acquisition channel that's defensible, uh, quickly brings scale, and uh, is, is actually super profitable. Yeah, I think I think a big thing that uh, especially like marketers do when they come into businesses and then, you know, start their own and then have the luxury of being backed by a VC and have all this cash to to pump into it. They end up finding a plateau on their CAC and kind of put up their hands and go, well, this is it. You know, we can either scale into different regions and maintain our existing CAC, but kind of don't have a different single mindedness where they're looking for opportunities to lower that CAC completely and you know, transform the business. So yeah, super yep. interesting. Yeah, um, Anthony, I think uh, I'm, I'm quite curious about uh, what some of the sort of biggest challenges and obstacles you guys faced, you know, since you started, you, you've been going for almost seven years now. Uh, so yep. you've, you've, that's a, a really nice amount of time to, to build some really good momentum. But you know, what, what mm. were some of the, the really difficult obstacles to get through and or over uh, i mean an obvious one is is covid um yes like uh, yes. largely when i think about when i think about us running the business you know i almost i almost think of it more like having done it for five years or even even four years because basically the last two two and a half years don't count years is just <laughs> yeah, we COVID. yeah they were just they were just a, they were a buy yes. um <laughs> when people say seven i'm like damn man like if things were going if things if if you know if not for covid it would be uh, you know, a significantly larger business at this point. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's, you know, <laughs> entirely a problem. And, you know, they're, they're actually really interestingly though, I think it kind of taught a lot, Like I mean, everyone looks for silver linings and clouds, um, because, you know, otherwise you're just stuck with clouds, but <laughs> mm -hmm. there was definitely some excellent learning experiences there around, um, managing a business in, in a negative scenario. Like mm. you realize that a lot of management and, and business operations, uh, particularly people management, keep, keeping morale positive. Um, that's all easy when things are going well, right? Like mm. you see tons of huge startups who have horrible PR nightmares, but overall it doesn't really matter because they're growing quickly, right? So there's enough people who are excited about it. So learning to manage during a downturn was interesting. Um, learning to think about kind of balancing that act between like, being ambitious, raising money when it makes sense, but also thinking like, you know, contingency planning, um, how do I keep this alive in, mm. in kind of the worst case scenario? So like I mentioned, we do some angel investing now. Mm. The, the first thing I ask everyone when they show us financial projections is, you know, what are you going to do if your revenue is 50% of what you projected? What are you going to do if your revenue is 25% of what you projected? Um, yeah. so, you know, it's, it's tough to balance the like, you don't want to be overly cautious and let that kill your ambition, but yeah. that's one thing. For sure. Um, next, you know, the biggest problem is probably hiring, probably tech hiring. Um, it's really hard to do well. It's really hard to do affordably. I think another thing actually that COVID really helped with was understanding that like the power of remote hiring. So, I mean, you guys are in South Africa, for example, um, like we now appreciate that that's actually a great place to look for technical talent because the time yeah. zone isn't that different. And the cost of living is so much lower that you can get people affordable rates. Like previously, yeah. the growth rate or scale that you'd need to be achieving to validate having a tech team of, I don't know, five people 
who are each on like between, you know, 50,000 pounds and 100,000 pounds, uh, you know, you need to either be growing really quickly or be making a lot of money for that to really make sense. Uh, whereas, you know, now with COVID kind of shifting that paradigm around remote working, there's some cultural difficulties uh, and yeah. there's some management difficulties, but, you know, you, you're getting people for sometimes half the price who are just as good, um, yeah. just for the fact that they live somewhere where living is more affordable. Yeah. Um, and, but nonetheless, hiring tech talent is difficult. Um, I mean, the one thing I've kind of realized is you can bulk at like using I know, platform fees and stuff, but there's now there's lots of reasonable platforms for finding people and it's just worth the money to like get those people quickly. Mm. Yeah. I mean, uh, Cape Town has a sort of perceived idea that, you know, everyone sits on a beach and uh, works for two hours a day. So as long as you can find people that don't do that, then I think you're smooth sailing. <laughs> But um, it's interesting that, uh, you know, uh, COVID was such a massive downtrend um, for Stasher. But ironically, mm. when, you know, as you start to, to, to come out of that and you're starting to grow the business again, because of what happened with COVID, you are now sort of looking across your borders to look for that tech talent. So in a strange way, it's, yeah. you know, now it's kind of favoring the growth of your business now, which, which is, is super yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it also it also taught us um, it taught us taught us a lot about uh, particular to our business, like how can we systematize processes to do them remotely rather than in person? Because going and doing things in person wasn't possible. Um, mm. So you know, like we were probably in retrospect incorrectly looking at like an Airbnb playbook of like you know sending city launchers and trying to build you know being there in person to try build relationships with people. Um, realizing that you can do most of that remotely, like sometimes it makes sense to do a little bit of it, you know, go to a local conference, meet people and stuff like that. But largely you can do that stuff remotely. And when you're forced to by COVID, uh, you end up building those processes. And, and now it's like, oh yeah, well, like actually, you know, we're doing the same stuff, but we're doing it at a way lower cost base. Uh, and, and we're kind of actually hitting wider territories rather than a smaller number of cities. Yeah. And I mean, after all these changes after COVID and you know, kind of revisiting the systems and understanding that there's a new approach for this, um, which is always nice to have this fresh approach and to wake people up from the sort of same things that they're doing and, and beliefs that they have. Uh, what does mm. the sort of roadmap look like for the next six to 12 months for you guys? Are you, are you still solving that same problem? And inherently, is that problem kind of driving the product? Or, or what does that look like for the, the sort of future of the company? Yeah, so I think one thing for us is that, and, and I mean, you, you might take this impression from the, the thing I said about the early founding where we had like a broad range of how we'd use it and focused in on something. Um, in startups, there's a big trade-off to focus, right? Uh, and so, you know, if you'd ask that question on like a three to five year horizon, I'd give you a different answer. But on a six to 12 month horizon, I think definitely like, you know, our number one thing is basically getting to as many towns and cities as possible, uh, signing deals with hotel chains. It's It's in the near term, the most accretive thing that we can do. But then in a kind of longer time frame, I mentioned, like a, I had an offhand sentence, but you know, we're building this network all over the world and it can be used for more things than just luggage storage, right? It's, it's a, and the value in it is that it's basically taking a bunch of fragmented different storage solutions uh, or options, and then we can actually provide that to other people. Um, so, or, or other people or launching our own other use cases. So some of the obvious things would be like, okay, um, to maximize value, you want it to be tangential. Uh, you want it to be connected to what you're doing so you can create some kind of cross-pollination. Um, can we use that network to provide other services to the vacation rental managers that we're working with? 
Uh, can we use that network to provide other services to the travelers that we're working with? And when you think about it like that, two really obvious things are like, okay, can we somehow help these people with um, the vacation rental managers with key exchange cleaners and their supplies, uh, any other kind of supplies that people need for their vacation rentals, whether that's like laundry or similar. Um, and then the other thing for the travelers would be like, okay, uh, people are trusting us with their luggage. Um, can we make things more convenient for them? You know, there's lots of delivery services in the world. What if we could integrate with those delivery services and you could uh, pick up or drop off from our locations rather than have a delivery window? Um, so starting to kind of use the network for wider, wider um, use cases and adding top line. But the six to 12 month answer is a lot of the same, maybe on the latter end of a six to 12 month time frame, starting to get like some testing for those services, identifying like what's, you know, what's the number one priority out of those. Um, other thing is like maybe, maybe package acceptance is something that's useful in that case. I don't know about South Africa though, but in the UK, it's a very crowded market, but there are people making a lot of money and we already have the network anyway. So maybe it's something that we can uh, look at. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the interesting thing is uh, what we were chatting about yesterday is uh, you don't really, as a business, sit back and go, you know, we've cracked it. This is it. We're going to be like this for the next, you know, five to ten years. And you guys are now seven years in, minus two, five years in, um, mm. and you guys are still testing every day and and looking at the product and looking at possible expansion opportunities, um, which which is incredible to see. Um, but Anthony, uh, Anthony, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being a guest on, on the pod. No problem, guys. No problem. I really enjoy chatting. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm sure we'll catch up soon. So what do we think, Stasha? Yo, it's a um, super unconventional platform, but it's very, very interesting to see, you know, to hear about their growth. I think that COVID definitely you know, that's the type of business that COVID really had a huge impact on, uh, you know, as, as, as you spoke, mentioned the down, downtrend of it, but I think, I think it'll do well. It's something that I could have used when I was overseas yeah. that you might use when you're overseas. So yeah, it's very, very interesting. Yeah. I think, uh, it's an interesting business because there's, there's so much data available for you to track, yeah. to, to make improvements. And I think that's kind of where they are at now. And everyone looks at seven years but seven years flies when you're in a startup and yeah and scaling like this and i think it's going to be interesting to see you know what it looks like in four years time because yeah you know all of these amazing tests coming out of covid people are no longer staying in their homes staying in their towns or staying in their countries like everyone's mm. wanting to move around because now they can mm. so you know there's a massive growth opportunity and how they're going to find these new partnerships is going to be interesting because yeah. as he said, the, the market's getting more saturated by time. Yeah. But I, but I also love that stash is not, uh, challenging the big guys too much. It's more of an extension of the, you know, the current massive platforms out there already. Yeah. They're not really coming in and, and you know, taking anybody head on. They're kind of just complimenting the, the booking.coms, the Airbnbs and, um, and those platforms. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's uh, definitely a big reason as to why they'll be successful. Yeah. Anthony Nicolaias uh, from Stasha. We'll catch you guys next week.